I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Greetings, music nerds, and welcome to Season 6 of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I am your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio here in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm really excited to be bringing you this new season of shows coming to you on the first and third Wednesdays of every month. I have a great lineup of fascinating conversations with incredible musicians, songwriters, guitarists, steel guitarists, drummers, composers, who knows what else. I've been having an incredible time diving deep with these folks, and I know you're going to enjoy listening. Just a reminder that this year I've taken out the short song samples through the show, as things have gotten way more complicated as far as legal use of music goes, so I'll be making an accompanying Spotify playlist to each episode, which you'll find in the episode's show notes and at the website at makersandshakerspodcast.com. So anytime you hear this cute little slide guitar sound, you'll know there's a track to go along with it on the playlist. We have some new sponsors this year, but continue to be largely listener-supported. Your help in keeping the show going is always appreciated, and you can do it with a one-time donation or a Patreon subscription. Patreon is a monthly payment of your choice, and when you sign up for that, you get a bit of added content as well as an ad-free version of the show to listen to. If you don't feel like kicking in any dough, that's cool too, but you can help by subscribing for free on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or just spread the word by sharing the show, following us on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and telling all your pals about it. You can get links to all this stuff, of course, at makersandshakerspodcast.com. Meanwhile, many thanks to our sponsors this season. Please check them out and let them know that I sent you. They are Isotope, Ear Trumpet Labs, Union Tube and Transistor, Black Mountain Picks, and Spectra 1964. Hey there, folks, and welcome back to season six of the show. This is episode number 122. If I sound a little funny today, there's two reasons for that. One is I'm not at home and I'm doing this remotely and I'm using different equipment and I'm sick. I don't have COVID, but I have something that I thought was COVID, but I've been testing every day and I don't have COVID, but I feel sick, but that's okay. I'm still here, still doing it, but I probably sound a little weird. So that's what's up. Today, I am bringing you a conversation with a fascinating musician who's been making records since the early 70s and is also a geyser of knowledge about blues, jump and swing music, none other than Mr. Duke Robillard. Meanwhile, summer is in full swing here now, and uh, my exciting news of the week is that the studio that I've been working on building for the last year, the Hen House, is finally done. It's sort of my third version of the Hen House studio. Uh, it wouldn't have taken anywhere near this long to to finish, but we got hit with a bunch of material shortages and delays. So that kind of sucked, but it was all worth it in the end. And uh, if you want to see some of the process of the building that I did, which was basically converting a garage into a studio, not terribly exciting sounding, but it is interesting if you're into that kind of thing. I will be posting some pictures and some videos of the process soon uh, over at stevedawson.ca. I am also booking sessions in there now, excitingly. 
So if you feel like coming out and making a record in historic East Nashville, drop me a line. We'll get you in here. And one more thing before we get going here, it feels weird to single someone else out the same week as this horrific elementary school shooting in Texas. I just don't think you need to hear me going off on that subject and all the crazy mayhem that's going on down here about that. But I do want to acknowledge instead one of our previous guests of the show who passed away this week, the great Ronnie the Hawk Hawkins. We had a great time speaking a few years back, and it's a pretty hilarious episode. So if you feel like spending a bit of time with the Hawk to clear your mind from all the mayhem and craziness going on out there, you can find it in the episode archives on the website at makersandshakerspodcast.com. Ronnie was episode number 42 from 2017, and it's a good time. Uh, and I should point out that all of my guests, there's well over 100 guests now on this show. Only two have passed away since being on this show. Hal Blaine was the first and Ronnie Hawkins now. So clearly the trick to longevity is being a guest on Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Yes. All right, let's get on to this week's episode. I first heard of Duke Robillard years ago when someone gave me a copy of his really cool album called Swing, which is a killer jazz guitar album. And I sort of assumed that that was his deal, as that was the only thing I knew about him. But it didn't take me long to put together that he was actually the, also the current guitarist in the Fabulous Thunderbirds at the time. And I had that album as well. And on that one, he's playing really raunched out double blues, rock and blues guitar and sounding amazing. That album was called Walk That Walk, Talk That Talk, and it came out in the early 90s at some point. Anyway, I dug into Duke's world, and that led me to his band called Roomful of Blues, which was just a killer, pretty traditional blues band with horns, and they played everything from like T-Bone Walker to Louis Jordan to B.B. King-style blues and everything in between. And Duke has studied the old records so deeply, and his playing is so nuanced, he can pull from all those influences at the drop of a hat and still just sound like Duke. Since leaving Room Full of Blues, he's been really prolific, and he's put out a solo record pretty much every year for a couple of decades now. His latest album that was just getting finished as we had this conversation, because we talk about it as though it doesn't exist, but it is out now, and it does exist, and you should get it, and it's called They Called It Rhythm and Blues. Duke has also done a ton of sessions as a producer and guitarist, and of course, I wanted to talk to him about the sessions for Bob Dylan's Time Out of Mind, which I've had the chance to speak to a few other people over the years on this show about. A very fascinating session. And Duke also had a short stint in Dylan's live band too, so we get into that a little bit. I love speaking with him about his history and some of his early instruments and how he experimented with guitar tones and the path that he's taken to get him where he is today. He's out on the road in Europe right now, so please go over to his website at dukerobillard.com and get all his tour info and order his records. And I'd just like to uh, put a shout out to the following folks who made donations or signed up to the Patreon over the last couple of weeks, Jeff Montgomery, James Donovan, and Mary Hickson. I really appreciate you guys. Thanks so much. Couldn't do it without you. So thank you. All right, let's get down to it. Enjoy my conversation with Duke Robillard. My history with your music kind of follows a funny path, I guess, because I first heard you when I was a teenager. Somebody gave me the the swing record, which is kind of a it's kind of a weird gateway into Duke Robillard, I think. Um, but that was my gateway to you. And then from there, I got into the the T-Birds record that you were on. Oh, and yeah. 
So that's that. So I, I kind of have a strange path into your into your world, but that's that that was it for me. So well, you know, they're all strange paths in a way because I've done <laughs> different things. You know. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you about that because you seem to do that really successfully, and it's something that I kind of mess with as well. Like in my life, I jump between a lot of different things, but you seem to do that uh, a lot. Is is jumping? You know both with roles as being a guitarist and vocalist and band leader and recording artist into producer and things like that, but also uh, stylistically going from something like that swing record into some of the more like real straight up gut bucket Chicago blues kind of stuff that you do. Um, it's a big jump. Like how, how, how do you navigate that musically do you kind of have like separate hard drives in your brain that you access for each kind of project? I, yeah, I, I think the word is car, uh, compartmentalize. Uh-huh. I think. Uh, um, I, you know, I've always just been like that. First of all, uh, when I was a kid, you know, I grew up hearing music on the radio, but also I had an uncle in a country band. And then when rock and roll came in existence, into existence i was like seven years old but my brother was 10 years older than me and he bought all the great records you know chuck berry little richard buddy yeah. holly elvis everybody fast domino and i never really saw the difference i i like i would listen to hank williams and maybe it was the chord progressions or something but something would tell me in my head that that was connected just like in the mood by glenn miller was really a lot of the song was a 12 bar blues was i i heard the blues and all the musics that i heard country music you know a lot of For rock sure. and roll, not all of pop music but but uh so i just grew up thinking that way and being open but then once i got older and i got so i could play pretty well you know, my my goal was as a kid to like to be able to emulate all those sounds and styles. So I I spent a lot of time, you know, learning to play. When I was in high school, some friends of mine came over to my house after school and they paid me 50 cents. They each put in a quarter and they sat there and they watched me learn no particular place to go. The solo by Chuck Berry. <laughs> And they, you know, they were sitting there laughing and just watched me for about an hour, you know, like going over it and going over it until I got it, you know. And uh, so I got my 50 cents, but I've always been able to kind of figure out how does this guy do that? And, and that led to me playing a lot of different kinds of guitars, you know, which was kind of a curse to me. Yeah, yeah. I'm still changing guitars constantly. I, n- but, I noticed, uh, and we got to talk about that, but we'll we'll get into that later. Yeah. Um, uh, that that brings up an inter- an interesting point. So, were you completely uh, self taught? Like, were you just figuring it out off records? I was totally self taught figuring out off records. My brother, my two brothers owned guitars, and they were like, uh, um, like ten and like 14 years older than me. So um, my mother, when rock and roll came in, I was like so excited. I was, you know, trying to learn to play guitar, but I wasn't allowed to have one. And my brothers really? wouldn't touch theirs. <laughs> so, you know, 
I, I, it got to the point where what I, my mother said, you're not doing that. Cause you know, she sees little Richard on TV and she goes, Oh no, my son's mm-hmm. not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> so they wouldn't let me have a guitar. My, my but, father, but your brothers, guitar. your brothers were allowed. They were because they weren't really guitar players. They did it. One of them did it for fun. Okay. And the other one just bought a, a Martin in like 19, you know, 48 or something for a collector because they were collector's items even then. Martins were. So he didn't play at all. And my other brother played, but it was just part of his life as a high school kid. He wasn't obsessed with guitar. So I was obsessed from the start. Really? That was it. I first time I heard uh, Fats Domino, um, Blueberry Hill and that that piano intro and that riff coming in, I got goosebumps all over me. You know, I was seven. And I said, what is this? I've never felt anything like this before. So I just became addicted immediately. And my mother saw that as being a really bad thing. (laughs) (laughs) So she did everything she could do to absolutely stop me from playing guitar. I wasn't allowed to play my brothers, which they would play them because I'm a seven-year-old kid and they are Uh older and they, you know, they get, my brother's got a 54 strand, which was, you know, not that many years after it was uh, invented. And so uh, I built my my uncle gave me a an acoustic uh, old craftsman K yep. and uh, it was one of those uh, round hole arch top guitars with the the kind of it, it, it was shaped like a mandolin in a way. And but I noticed that the the neck was attached with a wing nut, so I took the neck off with uh, loosened the wing nut, and I told my father. I said I was in the eighth grade by now. I said, Dad, I gotta have an electric guitar. I want to build one for the science fair. Oh, cool. And he said, Well, you know, okay, I'll see if I can help you. We found some wood down in the basement, two pieces of three-quarter inch marine plywood. We, we bolted two pieces together. I drew a Telecaster. Oh, you used a Tele as, a, as, a, as your inspiration? And I didn't even know what it was called. I didn't even know it was a Tele. I just saw James Burton play it on uh, Ozzy and Harriet every week. So I drew, <laughs> I drew it, and my father cut it out. We had some robin egg blue paint in the base basement we we figured out a way to to bolt on the neck and uh but wait how did how did you build a neck oh no we took the neck from the keg oh okay went on with a wing nut we just chopped it off at the heel and (laughs) uh, bolted it on and you know of course the angle wasn't right i didn't know anything about that stuff yeah we used the tailpiece from the um from the K and the bridge, but the bridge was way too high. You couldn't play it. So I just had to use the bridge top, but that was too low. So I put a popsicle stick underneath it and that made it un- almost playable. I mean, it was playable. You're already shimming and and, and modding guitars at seven. Yeah. And of course <laughs> I needed a pickup. So we went up to the local music store and they had a dearmament. One of those ones that, you know, you just screw on the guitar and then yeah. it's got a little control plate you know love those things i still i still use those all the time i do too yeah. i've got three dearmits from 
the newest one I got is from 66. Then I got the old guitar mic ones that are from the 50s. But um, anyway, so we put that Diarmidon and I was in a band a week later. You know, they couldn't stop. Once it was my guitar and it, oh, it won second prize in the science fair. So wow. that was great because they couldn't, my mother couldn't say, oh, you can't have that you know right right it's science mom i made it with my dad i was in the science fair so that was that got me uh my first guitar so this is this is you grew up in rhode island right yes and up in the the uh in that time in boroughville rhode island which was uh uh a county i guess it was and then the town of harrisville is where i grew up and it was really a um it was very it wasn't well populated, wasn't highly populated then. It's still not, but it's a lot more than it was then. But I yeah. mean, I li- it was a long walk to my next friend's house, you know. Yeah. I mean, so I spent a lot of time alone as a kid because, you know, I'd, I'd, you know it'd be a, a truck to get on my bike and drive, you know, I mean, you know, uh, pedal for a long way. So I did a lot of, you know, working to learn to play guitar and just, hanging out in the woods. I was a kid, you know? And, so, so you never had anyone show you, a, you know, like a few Chuck Berry licks or anything that was all, you just sort of figured it out? Well, I watched my brother play. So that's how I learned the initial chords. Okay. And then he had a friend whose name was Frankie Hobson, who was a really good guitar player. And he had a Gibson's lawn uh. switchmaster. And he would come down his house, uh, my house, and jam with my brother. So I did watch what he was doing to kind of just get an idea of things. And then there was a band, uh, a, a guy across the street from me was a friend of my brother's, and he was in a band. So I would go, when I got old enough, I would go to little dance hall things and watch him playing. And cool. finally, when I got to about 13 or 14 years old, he let me sit in. I didn't even look these, you know, I just put my finger at a fret and said, here, this one. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I had no, I I only took, I think, two guitar lessons in my life. And I was in my 30s, probably, mid-30s. Oh, wow, okay. The teacher taught me some fairly complex stuff to start. And I, uh, I decided that, if I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to come out a completely different person on the other end. This was a very well-schooled uh, jazz guitarist. Uh-huh. And I love jazz and I was into it. But the problem was for me uh, that I would have to give up all my bad habits and wrong fingering and start from scratch. And I just thought, I like what I'm doing now. And I'm playing jazzy enough, I don't think I really need to completely redo my whole thing, you know? So I kind of gave up the idea of lessons because I I thought I just have to stop gigging for like a year and sit home and do nothing but practice all day. So I I couldn't afford to do that. That's that's, that's what I felt I had to do to really get something out of lessons. It could have just been my way of getting out of you know, because I'm by nature, I'm fairly lazy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so it could have been that. that is. Do you remember a specific time or a song or anything where things started to come together for you, where you felt like you could actually 
play something like you heard it on the record? Like, was there a moment for you? What, maybe you were seven, maybe you were 12, I don't know, but that you were like, I can do this. I actually, within a short time, could pick up most things that I wanted to play, which were early rock and roll. The instrumentals, you know. Like, like which, which ones in, in particular? Oh, Walk, Don't Run, uh, Dwayne Eddy tunes, Ramrod. I played a lot of Dwayne Eddy tunes, all his early things, uh, Moving and Grooving, uh, Rebel Rouser, all that stuff. Oh, yeah. And it, it came to me really easily. It, it wasn't hard. In fact, as I got older, I, start, I started thinking to myself that, like, you know, there's something weird here. Like, it just, just comes to me too easy. Like, I started thinking, once I heard about reincarnation, I actually started thinking that, you know, kind of God just came down and hit me and said, okay, you can do this, you know, because it wasn't much work. Of course, it's more work now. <laughs> when, it, when, you, when it comes to, like, really learning, uh, you know, complex things, of course, right. it's much harder. And... Uh, and plus, now I have no rotator, no rotator cuff at all on my left shoulder, which oh, wow. makes it, I have to play really, really weird, and I, I can't control my arm right. But anyway, uh, so yeah, I, uh, and then I have. Oh, this is great. This was how I learned to play when I was in high school, and uh, I was playing, and I had like a cover band, but we played blues songs and like. Beatles and Rolling Stones and stuff like that. But, you know, I was trying to learn to play like Hubert Sumlin. And I had, you know, a small record player, the one with, you, they have the thing that drops the records, you know. You, sure. You, well, if you move that thing to the, to the right, it just replays the same side over and over. So I used to go to bed listening to like one side of a Howlin' Wolf album. And I would just go to sleep. And I'd wake up in the morning or make wake up in the middle of the night and it would still be playing. So I'd shut it off. And I started learning to play like Hubert Sumlin, like it would just come to me. <laughs> it was a really odd thing. It was like some kind of weird osmosis thing, you know. Amazing. Those Wolf records were really, that was a big thing for you then. Oh, Wolf. The two things that really got me going on blues guitar first were... Howlin' Wolf with Hubert Sumlin, and then Matt Guitar Murphy with Memphis Slim, those few Memphis Slim albums that had Matt Murphy on them. He, I just idolized that. I, and I didn't even know who he was because in the old days, they didn't tell you any information, you right, know, right. They didn't say who the guitar player or the personnel was. So uh, I finally learned out, learned, I mean, found out who he was. And, uh, you know, he, kind of became an idol of mine. But then I heard B.B. King and Tebow Walker next. Mm -hmm. So that was the next step for me. And that that just ruled my life for many years. <laughs> and notes aside, like from what I from what I understand of what you're saying is that you the notes came easy and maybe the feel like you've always had that feel to be able to interpret what they were doing was the tone of what they were up to because you know there's well what Hubert's doing there's a lot in his or most of it is in his hands obviously yes there's yes, some absolutely. there's some gear involved there's you know like the right guitar and the right amp those combinations wouldn't have been available to you right no no, but I'd learned how to get close to those sounds uh, 
before I had more than one guitar, you know. Yeah. Uh, I started, well, I think I realized early that it was all in your hands. Yeah. So I do emulate however I could those sounds, you know. Then when I got to I could afford more than one guitar, then I would, you know, I'd have a Gibson, uh, maybe an Archtop, and then I'd have a, a, a Telecaster or a Stratocaster. And, you know, uh, then it became much easier to emulate. Right sounds because yeah. i could always tell you know that like johnny watson was pulling on the strings with his fingers not a pick and, and that snap on the telly that's how he got that sound or you know how t-bone would play on an arch shot but he'd pick close to the bridge and yeah get that real clean bright sound so i learned i learned that trick from you actually <laughs> just like i didn't i mean i learned i i heard t-bone doing it and i just thought like wow that's a really sort of trebly cool weird sound and then i saw you doing that and i was like yeah. that's oh, okay that's how that happens <laughs> <laughs> I, i've always had a knack to be able to figure out how somebody got that sound in uh-huh. the john you know, or the, maybe the swing genre also, but not, not so much the rock and roll genre because it it involved things that uh, I didn't care that much about, like a lot mm-hmm. of pedals or or um, certain techniques that I actually purposely didn't learn so I would stay in a pure blues vein, you know? Yeah. So was there a point for you where you kind of... Like rock, like the early rock and roll and the instrumental guitar stuff of you know the fifties, early sixties. But was there a point where you where you really felt like you uh, switched and dedicated to blues guitar over and just sort of left all the rock and roll stuff behind? Even though there is definitely like a lot of crossover and stuff. But oh, of course, this the blues uh, rock and roll guitar is blues yeah. guitar, really. I mean, uh, but you know, I in the sixties. When the San Francisco bands came out, you know, I was like middle, I was in, I guess, probably a senior in high school or just about to graduate. Yeah. And I did follow all that stuff to see what it was about. I liked Grateful Dead, especially I, I liked their first album because they played a lot of blues on it. And I liked yeah. the influence of blues that was in all those San Francisco bands. And and uh, and did I you, followed, did you dig like Bloomfield and guys like that? Was that I was just going to say that, you know, of course I love them, you know, at the same time I was listening to all the, the early uh, Chicago black musicians and, you know, taking what I could from either one of them, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But then I got to a certain point where I just decided I wanted to be a purist. I think maybe once I discovered rhythm and blues the original rhythm and blues like louis jordan and joe turner winoni harris the jump blues of the 40s i was so intrigued by that music you know it had horns it had jazz like soloing at times it had uh good arrangements funny songs novelty songs real blues songs oh it seemed to have all the elements of music that I thought were really the coolest elements. Yeah. And, uh, and then I, I learned how that really was grew out of the, the black jazz bands, the big bands like Count Basie and Duke Ellington and Jimmy Lunsford bands. I became a historian is really what I did, you know? Yeah. 
and I studied each genre, even the acoustic blues genre. I, I really went back and, and studied it. Of course, when I, at the time, it was harder to find because they didn't have reissues. You had to find the 78s. Or then they started in the mid-60s reissuing Robert Johnson. Then Dick Waterman recorded Sunhouse. And so, but to find those original records when I was a kid, that was the only way you could hear it, you know, until in the 70s or I think late 60s, 70s, they started these little companies like Tacoma and Biographs right. reissuing yeah. stuff from the 70s, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, but I, I became like the historian. I wanted to know where everything started, and I didn't feel legitimate if I didn't know quite a bit about where it started, you know. So I went back. I I got into jazz, early jazz. I went back to Louis Armstrong and all that. In fact, I'm still, I'm stuck in the 20s right now. It's a deep well, man. There's no, I yeah. I'm sitting with, I've got about seven or 8,000 78s here in my basement. You do, I wondered. And, you know, I, I've kind of, I'm at the point, well, I've got a lot of vinyl too and CDs, but for my research, I just go back to, I'm a purist. I love the the sound coming off of 78. And if you get mm -hmm. something that's in good shape and you have a good system, oh my God, there's no better sound. You know? It really is like being in, in, in the room. I, I don't have a great one, but I have a decent way to play 78s. And I, I love listening for that reason too. You just feel like, you know, there was basically for most of those recordings, it's just one microphone and it was all in where that microphone was, but you can that's close that. your eyes and you just feel like you're in that room. It's amazing. It's a beautiful thing. It's yeah. I, I'm I'm just completely. I, I don't I don't know if in my lifetime I'll I ever get to really hear every seventy eight I have. <laughs> Where did most of them come from? Like, did you at some point were you uh, admitted hoarder slash collector of seventy eights, or did that just gradually? Well, it started in the seventies because once I heard Joe Turner and. Winoni Harris, Roy Milton. And then I went looking for these guys. There weren't albums, so there weren't many. They hadn't started realizing there was an audience for this record. It went through a 10-year period at least where, you know, nobody, or maybe 15 or 20-year period when nobody cared about it or reissued it. So um, I started going to, you know, just secondhand shops and finding mm -hmm. them. And once I realized this music existed, I became like a crazed, you know, yeah. I would go to, I would take a bus. I didn't even drive in those days. I would take a bus. It would be like a, an entire day um, of hunting for 78s. And I where, remember- Where would you have to go for that? Because you probably didn't have one in your town, right? A store that sold them? Uh, I ended up finding places, a lot of places in my town. I ended hmm. up a lot of secondhand shops. And then I found a record store that I was buying blues records from with a guy bought that ran it, bought a, uh, a whole collection of rhythm and blues records. Awesome. And he kind of knew that I was interested in it. And I lived a block away. So he used to actually <laughs> let me take them home, play them and decide which ones I want. And, you know, cool. give them back the ones I didn't want. So that, that got me hooked. And then, I went up to Boston to, to uh, Roxbury, Mass, 
to a black record store called a Melody Shop. And I went in and I asked the guy, I said, have you got any old blues records, you know, 78s? And he goes, well, you know, it's funny you say that because I've got a basement full of them. <laughs> he goes, but, you know, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if... I haven't gone through them. I don't know how I'd go about selling them. And I said, well, look, how about you let me go down and look and see if there's anything I'm interested in? And he goes, look, kid, give me 20 bucks. You get on there, look around, you come up. If you find something, I decide what they're, they're going to cost. If you don't find anything, I keep the 20 bucks. So I said, okay, no problem. <laughs> I found brand new, entire collections of oh my Lewis, God. Buddy Johnson, uh, Walter Brown, uh, Jay McShann, Jimmy Rushing, Count Basie. Uh, I mean, just all of that stuff. And I was just finding out that this music existed because it was still before reissues. Right. And that made me a complete obsessed, you know, blues and rhythm and blues maniac. I, I there was no holding me back. How many records did you walk out of there with that day? Well, I had to go back several times. <laughs> but I, worked, I probably came out with three or four crates worth. Wow. Yeah. You dove deep. You were big into like the history and the, you know, tracing things from one step back to the next back to the origins and all that. So what was your what was your playing experience like going from being a kid, say when you were 10 or 12, when when we sort of left off up to the roomful days, which was you were you were pretty young when you started roomful, right? Like were you 20 or something like that? It was 18, I think. 18, wow. 17 or 18. I think 18. And roomful really pulls from a lot of that kind of stylistically, like there's a lot of big band, there's a lot of influences in there. Um so you you knew that stuff by then. Um not when we started. See really? when, when, I was, when we started the band was playing um I really wasn't that aware of the rhythm and blues sound, except for B.B. King, uh, Albert King. We were playing a lot of Chicago blues. We had diff we didn't even have horns in the beginning. But then once I started getting into the, the stuff with horns, then I added two tenor saxophones, uh, Greg Piccolo and Rich Latai. And the, as we were going along, uh, Doug James came into town from the West Coast. He was basically hoboing with a friend of his around. And they happened to come into Westerly, Rhode Island, which where we were kind of based at that point. And when we realized that he could play sax and was willing to try to play baritone, uh, we added the third horn. And that's when it really started, because then with three horns, and then I sometimes added a harmony on guitar we were able to emulate that bigger band sound, you know? So that started like about 1970, 71. Were all those guys and Al Copley, were they all local to that's to the same town that you're from? Well, the, near the same town, you know, wow. within a few small towns, a little. And so how did you first meet Al and what was your early interactions with him? Well, Al was quite a bit younger than me. Uh, oh, okay. I think about maybe five years younger than me. Oh, so he so, was just like a kid when you started the band. He was a little kid. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and 
And once he heard blues piano, he was he was able was, to pick it up right away. Was he good then? Because there's no, there aren't really recordings of you guys that I'm aware of in the early days of Roomful. Like it took a while for you to make a record, right? Yeah, but I have recordings. I have live recordings, and I have actual basement recordings of, and actually in his mother's living room with Al and me and the original drummer and bass player uh, and doing some original songs too in, in playing playing blues from that point. I'm, I'm right now coordinating a giant mass of early music of mine live and, you know, things like that done yep. in a house on a four track, you know, so, uh, but anyway, yeah, it was by 71, we had the three horns. And by that time I was well versed in the rhythm and blues material. And I, you know, I just, I did anything I could to buy more records weekly. I mean, I, I would sell anything I had to go buy more records except my guitar and amp, you know? Yeah. So, uh, was one person more than another responsible for the arrangements that you guys were locking in on was that a or was that like a a communal effort i would go to the guys and i would give them records and say take this home and listen to this and kind of absorb this guy's style you know baritone players i'd give the doug and rich alto and tenor players and greg i'd give him the honk and tenor players (laughs) and so we all got influenced by my record collection basically but everybody started having their own ideas and picking up riffs that they liked from these records so when we needed anything actually really arranged uh that was more complex and the the harmonies weren't obvious uh, harmonies then al would do it because he was going to berkeley and he Uh. learned arranging yeah. So, uh, so it was a combination of Al, if it was anything complex, but we always threw in like, how about this riff from here and this riff from there? And then if it was complex to make it sound good, Al would arrange it, you know, okay. give us the parts, you know, so, but it was all done by ear in those days. Fairly early on, I read somewhere and I don't know what the, what the scenario was, but, but you guys got to play with Basie. Is that as a band, like, is that true? We opened for Basie three times. Yeah, Crazy. And, How was that? Fact, it was great. And he loved us. And the, the real strange thing is that I think before we even pl- opened for him, we were playing this place called Sandy's Jazz Revival up in uh, Massachusetts, up on the, the North Shore there, um, Beverly, Mass. And... One night, oh, we had got we had hired Helen Humes, the singer who sang with Basie, to, to and we backed her up. We do this. We'd hire these people that from that era and do shows and back them up. So she cool. was singing with us, and we're playing, and the doors over there, and we look to the side and see this sailor cap, you know, the cap that Basie wore in his later years, you know. Yeah. We see this cap and we go, oh no. <laughs> this Basie and John Hammond Sr. Oh my God. Coming in the door. And we're, you know, I'm, I'm like, we were all like just wetting our pants, basically. You know, yeah. I mean, we were scared shitless, you know. Yeah. 
it was a club with seating for you know they were close to us and we're just going oh my god you know i'm so embarrassed you know and uh but he was so sweet he really really loved, he was very complimentary and uh in fact he liked us so much that it, you know they allowed us to open for him several several times and um you know um I think they even got a quote. The record company get got a quote when we first first uh, put our first album out. Basie had said, uh, you know, the best uh, white blues band to ever play the blues or something, you know. So they Amazing. used that as a promo, you know. So we were lucky. We got to, you know, and it, it, we even got to see Ellington. I mean, we didn't open for him, but he played in Rhode Island like several times. Once in the basement of this restaurant, which you would never think you could see Duke Ellington. And uh, it, I mean, I, I'm so lucky to be my age because. What were guys like that doing at that at that point in their careers? Because obviously it was not their heyday, but like, were they fronting big bands still or had they scaled Ooh. it down to a small? It was still a no. big band. Ellington and Basie were both full size bands. Wow. Yeah, um, basically had gone down to a small band in the 50s, but then for a short time and then just said, you know, this isn't right, you know, and put the yeah. big band back together. And then they kind of reformed, recalculated their sound and kind of updated it. And, yeah. you know, but they still did all material, a lot of material from their heyday. And, and Ellington, too, would do new material, but also go back to like his... 20s stuff and play right. that with a new arrangement you know so there's a big period of time where as i mentioned before like you guys didn't make a record i think until 77 was your first one right right i mean you started when you were in like 67 <clears throat> as far as i know that's when you formed the band so yes. was your touring like were, were you guys going full tilt across the country and stuff or were you were you pretty regional or what was your situation on the road at that we were regional we 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 went from, first of all, from, uh, say, New York up to Toronto. That was okay. our, our run. And then as it... Where, where we, would you play in Toronto? El Macambo. Yeah, nice. Okay. We got to play the El Macambo, which, you know, that was such a great room. And we, we played downstairs the first time we played there. And I think by the third time we were there, we had a following and they put us upstairs. Yeah. So it, that was a great thing. My our days playing El Mambo were just wonderful times, and um, uh, so as it grew, we started going south. We went down. We got very popular down in D.C. and Virginia, mm -hmm. and then we ended up getting a gig at '78 at the New Orleans Jazz Fest. Oh, so we cool. started going down there, and I think maybe on that trip we went over to Texas. And we had already met the Thunderbirds like a, a year before, maybe, or two years. Yeah. And uh, so we went over there and they brought all their fans out to see us. And Stevie Vaughan came out, sat in with us when he was just, you know, uh, cool. very young, you know. Yeah. And uh, so that that was as far as I went with the band. And by the time I left, uh, they after that, by their next album, they were going out to California by then. 
So that <clears throat> that first record that you made, um, what was your experience like making that record? Because like, I guess you hadn't really had much studio experience by that point, right? Like you were obviously kind of a seasoned vet, probably at 23 or 24, whatever, however many years old you were, but you hadn't made a lot of records. No, we had only done recording in small local studios or, or like we'd We'd get a little hall and rent it and have our friend come with a four track and, you know, we, we experimented because we yep. wanted it fussy. We wanted it sound Legit. like an old record. We didn't yeah. want it to sound like a modern record, you know. So in that way, we kind of hit it off with Thomas and um, uh, Joel Dorn. Doc especially loved us when he heard what we were doing. That we were best friends from the first day we. Where met. did you run into him? Like, was he at, at one of your gigs or something? Well, we happened to get a gig in New York City at the Bottom Line. We were opening for I think Bonnie Raitt or Doctor John or both of them. I can't mm-hmm. remember exactly. We played with both of them. We used to play the Bottom Line a lot. But Doc heard about us and came out, and when he heard us, that was it. I mean, we were close we wrote songs together wow um, that's and, cool and doc said i'm gonna help get you guys a deal and he went to joel dorn and said you gotta come here these guys you know and what, and joel, what label was that this was on island that was oh the okay first. oh wow that's that that and island would have been would have been like uh a, that, that's a big deal back in those days yeah it was a big deal and it was basically a We'll give you one shot. And if it does well enough, we'll do a second one. And by the mm-hmm. second one, they put us on the uh, Antilles label, which was a subsidiary of Ireland. It sold well, but not well enough, you know? Yeah. Um, but of course, it's been reissued at least a half a dozen times, the first album. But when we were in the studio anyway, recording, we were totally green. And we... and they wanted us to do it totally live yeah. Joel and Dorn first of all you get it done a lot faster and it's less expensive what studio were you were you in uh, it was on oh, I think it was West 57th or 8th in uh, in New York yeah I do know but I can't I I can't think of it off I've got I actually have the original eight boxes cool of, of some of the mixes they got, they were in a uh, flood and I am going to, at some point, buy a tape recorder and chance destroying the tape recorder to get the tracks that were never released. I have mixes awesome. that weren't on And I have a whole album's worth of outtakes I that I took from cassette, but they still, you know, it's definitely worth airing. And some of them sound like real mixes. Yeah. This show is brought to you by the good folks at Isotope, who make incredible plug-in software for any music or dialogue recording situation. Among other things, they make a very unique suite of software called RX, which you can use to surgically repair almost any kind of issue in a recording. Whether it's removing electrical hum, unwanted noise, vocal plosives, or almost anything you can throw at it. I use Isotope RX on every mix in one way or another, and I love that I can get in there on guitar tracks that I'm doing and running through my crazy old tube amps and get rid of the hum and noise without affecting the actual tone of the guitar. You can buy their plugins outright or get a subscription to keep up to date on all their latest versions. Right now, they're offering listeners a 10% discount on any of their plugins when you use the code SOULPOD10 at checkout. 
So head on over to isotope.com slash soulpod, and you'll see the links right there to get the discount or an extended 30-day trial of their subscription service of Music Production Suite Pro. We're also brought to you this season by Black Mountain Picks. These are unique spring-loaded thumb picks that are super comfortable and adaptable. I've been using them for a couple years now, and I absolutely love them. They come in medium gauge, heavy gauge, jazz-tipped, left-handed, and with regular or extra-tight spring tension. Check them out at blackmountainpicks.com. Also thanks to Ear Trumpet Labs, a workshop in Portland, Oregon, hand-building amazing-sounding microphones. These large diaphragm condensers combine state-of-the-art sound with eye-catching designs and the feedback control to excel live as well as in the studio. I am using their Edwina myself right now on this podcast. Check them out at eartrumpetlabs.com. And finally, the Hen House Hang. It's a four-day immersive recording experience right here with me at the Hen House Studio in East Nashville on September 19 to 22, 2022. Join us for a musical learning experience like no other. We'll put you up in a groovy hotel, feed you some glorious food, show you the ropes of recording roots and Americana music by bringing you in on a real session with real musicians working on real songs from the ground up. You can get all the info on that at stevedawson.ca. Just follow the links on the front page to the Hen House Hang. All right, then, let's get back to the show. Was it one of the classic studios there, or was it just like a, yeah, a little... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, it was, it okay. Was, might have been Something Sound Studio. Uh, I can let you know what it yeah, is. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll look it up. I'm curious. I'm just curious, but it, it doesn't matter. But uh, did you end up tracking it pretty much live and like just setting up like you would at a gig? Not one overdub. And we played yeah. every song, almost every song that we knew. And that, so for three days, <laughs> we played day and night. It was like gigs. And yeah. we never did a second take. We, we I, cause I, I had this thing about it. I said, no, I don't want to do something twice. Let's, <laughs> well, if we're going to redo it, we'll do it tomorrow. Right. So, so, it's so there's like, some, yeah, I get it. So it, it was a weird way to record, but it really worked good. And uh, it's a killer sounding so record. There was so much material and it was really honestly all good. You guys had 10 years of gigs to pull from at that point. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> hundreds of songs. What were you, what, what did you use on that record guitar and amp wise? Do you remember? Yes. Yeah. On that, by, I was, by that time, I was pretty bothered. Uh, <laughs> now I had a, a Music Man 210 amplifier. Uh, and I had a brand new telly that I bought the day that we went to New York to record. I ran yeah. down West 48th Street, New York, and bought a new telly. So I had a brand new telly, and I had a 19, like 39 or 40 uh, Charlie Christian ES-150 guitar. And, so, and and the whole record is is one or the other of those two? Yes, one or the other. And it's funny because some people ask me funny questions like, uh, well, like we did Texas Flood. Uh, and my mind you, five years before uh, yeah. T.B. Vaughn heard it. In fact, he probably heard us do it. Probably. Um, but um, I recorded that for some reason on the Charlie Christian guitar. Why I did that, I don't know. I'm using a wound <laughs> G-string on it. But then yeah. I recorded this tune of mine called Duke's Blues, which is really mellow, laid-back, jazzy. I recorded that on the Telecaster, but I just rolled off the tone on the neck pickup, and everybody thinks that's the Charlie Christian guitar. Uh, 
<laughs> yeah, it does have that sound for sure. I, I kind of like to fool people that way. I like to play guitars you're not supposed to play for certain, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I Because it's really in the hands. You know that. It's in the hands. What led to you leaving the band? Like, like Roomful of Blues continues to this day. And there's been so, it's probably the, the, the most lineup changing band of all time. There's been like 40 some odd people through that band. I think, I think it's been, I think somebody said it was more than 50. Wow. Um, so um, what, what, what was your path to, to wanting to go and do your own thing? Well, you know, honestly, I didn't, I didn't roomful to me was my own thing. Right. I had picked all the material from the beginning, except for a few features that the guys, you know, wanted to play, you know, the horn players or something wanted to do a certain tune as a feature. And that's what we did. But um, it came to a point where, you know how bands are. <laughs> I do. For like, you know, a, a dozen years as since the beginning of the original the horn band, that was like, uh, it was probably 10 years, you know, uh, that we were together. And um, you know, there were growing pains in a way, but I was writing a lot of material. And uh, we had lost our record deal, and it was a little depressing. And we didn't know what to do, but a friend of ours who was doing fairly well in his business uh, uh, wanted to pay for us to go into the studio and produce a record with us. And we were going to record all my songs, which were right in the, in the mode of the old R&B. I mean, I just yep. wrote traditionally. But uh, a guy or two in the band started not thinking that was a good idea or for what I didn't want to really get personally into it because we still all, yeah. we play together still, actually. But uh, anyway, it, it seemed to me like, okay, now I'm getting opposition for doing what I did from the start. Maybe it, maybe this is just the time to look for something else. And Robert Gordon, the uh, rockabilly guy, uh, had heard us and he liked my guitar playing. And we met and he wanted me to come down and audition. Him. So I did, and he offered me good money to be in his band. And I figured, well, this will give me buy me time to figure out what I really want to do of my own next. So uh, it was perfect. So it was I, the perfect transition. It, it was really nice, except for he. <laughs> not long after that, he decided that he wasn't going to travel, wasn't going to play a lot, just kind of played in New York. And so all of a sudden, you know, I started off like living in a hotel in New York thinking, okay, you know, this is going to turn into something, but it just kind of slowed down to a stop with a gig here and there. And it wasn't enough to live on, right. you know? And finally it got to the point where the, uh, what do they call it? A retainer. He was paying me to, you know, to stay in the band. It just wasn't enough. You know, yeah, yeah. At that point in my life, I was used to working seven nights a week. You know, yeah, man. So, so I went and started my first trio at that point because I, I, I actually I started a band with piano and two horns, and everybody involved with the band, and and it, you know, sounded very much like Room Full of Blues, and everybody that was in the band said, "Oh, we're going to get compared to get to Room Full," and this is. Yeah. You know, and I, I said, 
so what? That's what I've been doing my whole life, you yeah. know, my whole life. But the last 10 years, which at that point, at that age, seemed like my whole life. Totally. So anyway, uh, that got me started on trying to, the guy that was managing me then said, why don't you try to put your guitar in front and, and, and do that and kind of try to take a more contemporary direction. You know, right, so that's right. I'd let the blues rock and rock and roll thing come into, and I started taking songs that I'd written for Roomful and turning them into more blues rock songs. Yeah. Lyrics to a different progression, different beat, you know. So, um, so I, I do re regret that that album never get made, but hey, maybe it will before the end, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. So the Robert Gordon gig, did you have to, like, was he doing pretty trad rockabilly stuff then? Or was he shifting into more of a blues mode? Or what was his deal at that no, time? completely rockabilly. You didn't, it wasn't a huge stretch for you to, to adapt to his vibe? No, not at all. I mean, I, that's what I heard when I grew up. Other right. than Chuck Berry and Little Richard and Buddy Holly, and I heard... You know Elvis, and I heard uh, I, you know all those tunes like Black Slacks, which he, which he used to do. My brother brought home all those records when yeah. I was a kid. He I had them all. You know, Rock Around the Clock. You know, every the whole beginning of rock and roll. So it wasn't even a leap at all because as a kid learning to play guitar, that's you'd learn those songs because that's you know, yeah. what's the cool guitar thing to learn? Oh, Rock Around the Clock. Friend Beecher's solo, you know, I mean, that's that's a thing to know, you know. And yeah, he he, it was kind of a scene with him, right, at that point. Oh yeah, well, as soon as he did that first album, you know, yeah, it, it really went over well, you know. And plus, he was on RCA, so that was know, big, he had yeah. the support, but he just, I don't know, he got kind of got cold feet. Just ended up staying. Like we, I was joining the band to do a tour of Italy. I was so excited. After we rehearsed and played the Lone Star a few times and the band sounded great, got the material down, he decided, eh, I don't want to go to Italy. <laughs> what is this? You know, so Oh my God. Yeah, that's, that's frustrating. That's when the trouble started. And yeah, just, yeah. You can't just sit around and wait for this guy, you know? <laughs> yeah. So. As you're doing those Pleasure Kings records and, and you're starting to get a little more rocky and stuff, like at some point... Or I don't know, maybe all along you've been playing the jazz stuff, but uh, sometime in the 80s, whatever year it came out, I don't even know when it came out because I would have got it probably in 91 or something like that when I first heard it. I think that, uh, or 86 maybe, Swing. Swing com came out. So Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. 
So that style, like when I hear that record, you know, th that to me, as I said, was my introduction to your playing. And to me, it was just like you were one of the great jazz guitar players. I didn't know any anything else. And that's all I knew of your playing. Um, is So that style of playing guitar, it's pretty radically different from the the other stuff you've been doing up to that point. Well, now that's where playing different guitars comes in too. Like back in Roomful, when I when I added the three horns, I was playing a borrowed Gretsch synchromatic with a Diarmin pickup and with no cutaway. And I wouldn't, I didn't want to touch a guitar with a cutaway. I wanted every obstacle that <laughs> the early guitar, Charlie Christian and Tiny yep. Grass, they didn't have yet so i just didn't want to play anything with a cutaway if i couldn't get up there it shouldn't be played right that's it you know so uh so i learned that com compartmentalized thing you know I, I learned to do that to put certain styles like even if i was playing a guitar today if i'm playing a say a uh Epiphone Casino with tens on it. If I'm going to play a jazz song, I'm going to play it really light. I'm going to roll a tone back, and mm -hmm. I'm go it's going to sound like I'm playing a jazz guitar. I'm mm -hmm. going to pretend that I'm playing heavier strings, you know, because I don't have them. I can make it sound like they're heavier by just right. lighter touch, you know. Yep. So all those little things that you learn to emulate sounds, uh, that's what I did. There's also a vocabulary of playing in that style that you have down that that d does not naturally come from playing, you know, the kind of music that you were playing in your other oh, bands. Not at all. Uh, well, see, part of playing the R&B was realizing that it came from uh, big band music, which I became a total collector and fan of that music. So, you know, in Roomful, we played bassy tunes and we played Jay McShan big band tunes and we we play yeah. a lot of music with with jazz progressions the simpler jazz progressions but you know I learned to play swing and that's we did as much swing as we did rhythm and blues in the earliest part of Roomful like that that kind of went away mostly I mean they still do some swing for sure but but you know we did a lot of it it was it was like half R&B in, in low down blues and half swing, you know, mm -hmm. swing R&B kind of music. So, you know, I learned a complete vocabulary in that band because that's what I wanted to play. I wanted to be Tiny Grimes, you know? Right. <laughs> the uh, Oscar Moore and I wanted to be Charlie Christian or, you know, or some of those other guys that play in that style but are a little funkier like Johnny Moore, you know, that kind of thing so uh, so to you was the swing album just a way to get that that kind of playing out of your system that you'd been working on for years and years it wasn't like something new that you'd just been working on recently or something well here's the thing when i was when we started doing the horn band roomful i met scott hamilton Are you familiar with him He's well from yeah from your recent record with him yeah well he's you know world class and he's quite a bit younger than me quite a few years maybe four or five years younger than me but he was just a prodigy you know like from as soon as he picked up the tenor sax he was playing in high school he's he was playing like a week later 
Lester Young solos. I mean, you know, he was brought up on jazz. His father was a jazz cornet player just at home. He wasn't a professional, but he was an art teacher. And he, he'd wake his kid up in the middle of the night to watch Louis Armstrong on TV. It was bred into him, you know. Yeah. So once Scott and I, you know, really met, we, we both loved jazz and rhythm and blues. And uh, so we would jam. Uh, Scott would sit in with us. I'd go to his gigs and sit in with them sometimes. And always, we always were good friends musically. And uh, his band, the Hamilton Bates Blue Flames back in the early days, you know, that's what they played. That's like the stuff we were playing on swing. So when I, I kept, all the time I was playing the, you know, blues rock stuff, I was still learning swing tunes and swing, the, the, yeah. everything, the vocabulary of that music. So I, uh, when, it, when I got to a point where I've recorded a lot of stuff and I thought, I don't want to get redundant. I don't want to keep going like this. I, and I love swing, so I'd love to do it out with Scott. And he's got a great band assembled that he plays with in New York. So, uh, so that was his band that you used that on that record? That was his band. Yeah. Oh, okay. Chris Flory was his guitar player, so he played rhythm on most of that record and Chuck Riggs. Yeah, they were all Scott's band. So that made it easy because they, right. we, are, we are all related to the same music in, in different ways. I mean, they appreciated the rhythm and blues stuff that, that yeah. grown up playing. And I love the jazz and swing. So it was easy. We just went in the studio and was it a quick, it was a quick session, couple days kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. We yeah. just, I think it was two days and we worked up, arrangements and and you I, are playing an art you are playing an arch top on that record right uh most of it okay most of it i'm playing a 1946 epiphone broadway with a with the guitar mike diarmid on it oh cool but some tunes i'm playing a telecaster with heavy gauge strings on it on oh. the, on the bridge pickup and I, I i i'm trying to think if i can remember the ones that i played because definitely some of the tunes exactly like you, that one, where I've got a big arrangement and I needed to get up high because I played fairly high. I needed a cutaway to do that little portal interlude that I do on it. So I played that on the telly, but with heavy strings. And I always have the guitars be fretted like those frets, that <laughs> those giant frets that I have on that uh, airline that you, you got from me. Love it. And so I'd use heavy strings on that kind of guitar and I could get, you know, a big sound by rolling the tone back. Yeah. So, yeah, I used the telly and I, I, it was mostly the arch stuff, but, but at least two or three tunes on that telly. Okay, cool. Um, I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about your stint with the, with the T-Birds, uh, which, as I mentioned before, was my second Duke exposure. But I went back, actually, when I knew I was going to talk to you and listen to that record, which I have not heard in quite a while and i don't know if you've if you've gone back and checked that record out but it's aged really well like a lot of a lot of that kind of music in the early 90s or i, I don't know what year that would have been but probably like 90 or 91 yeah, a lot of them pretty, sound pretty sh pretty shitty and kind of cheesy but that record kicks ass man like the playing's killer the tones are killer and the I'm songs are really, great i'm really happy with that record we took yeah. Quite a bit of time writing it and rehearsing it. 
and Steve Jordan produced it. And uh, like and, Steve Jordan, the drummer, Steve Jordan. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, shit. Wow. Amazing. So, you know, we we bonded a lot. You know, we had a lot of fun. You yeah. know, uh, we we'd end up having me and Kid Bangham, the other guitarist and and Steve, we didn't end up like playing uh, uh, like surf rock instrumentals at like three o'clock in the morning and stuff. Yeah. You know, and just having fun, you know, yeah. other than making the record, you know. So did you make it in Austin or something or where where was that oh, done? It was out in Marin County somewhere and I can't oh. think the name of the studio. It's up in it was up in the hills and it I mean it was like a a, a gated place. I mean you couldn't mm-hmm. leave, you know, uh I mean you couldn't get in. And I wasn't we weren't allowed to leave while oh. we were there. I thought, in fact, I convinced them to let me out. I was, I was going crazy. Was it, uh, I, I, I told them I needed a fret job, which I did. So I got somebody to drive me into San Francisco to get a fret job on my guitar. And while I was there. I went to all the music stores and record stores. And I went, uh, <laughs> a little culture. Yeah, it was a little too much, like being <laughs> locked in one place all the time, you know. So your path to that band, I assume, was because you were pals with them and Jimmy Vaughn left the band and well, they needed a know, guitar player and you were the guy. Those guys, we tried to get them a deal. They came up to Boston and heard about us. They were playing. the Nobody knew about them. They were playing the Speakeasy, a little club in Boston. And we were playing this place, Jonathan Swift's. And they heard about us. Somebody said, you have to go here, Roomful. So they came over. And they were flipped out and we met them that night and we, you know, it was like we couldn't stop talking about all the music we loved. Now, how come you're playing music yeah. down where we are? You know, how come you're playing all this Texas guitar stuff? You know, and I said, oh, is that Texas? You know, I knew T-Bone was from Texas, but a lot of those guys like on those records, they didn't tell you stuff. So I'm right. I didn't know this guy was from Texas. So this that guy was from Texas is just. I, I knew I loved that sound. So I, you know, so anyway, we became really good friends and we started doing double gigs together in Rhode Island and Connecticut, Massachusetts uh, often. And it, that, those were just unbelievable shows. I bet. We'd I bet. sit in with each other. And so we became good friends and we were big admirers of each other. So uh, when it came time, actually, we, we got a session for through Doc Thomas for the T-Birds, but uh, they did a, a recording. But for some reason, I don't know, something about it, the session didn't go as well as everybody wanted or something happened that it didn't come out. But then soon after, it they did get a, a, a deal with Tacoma, I guess it was. But uh, anyway, so we played a lot with them. The Roomful Horns would play on their records and, you know, yeah. he's played on a few of my albums. Yeah. So when when Jimmy decided to leave, he'd say he just told Kim, call Duke, you know. Right. Because it Easy. was kind of a natural thing at that time. They would yeah. hire these guys to go out and play second guitar with them on, on a, a big show here and there. Or, you know. Had had you had experience playing with another guitar player in a band before? Oh yeah. You had. My okay. first my first bands that I played in were two guitars and drums, no bass, you know, okay. we hard to find bass players in the early days. <laughs> so was it, because it was just the beginning of bass guitar, you know? Right. Not as common. Yeah. 
did it really gel with you and Kid Bangham? Because you guys sound killer together. And it's oh, very right. like, it's kind of obvious who's playing what. I mean, sometimes I can't totally tell who's who, but you can, the guitars are very separate on that record. We made a great team. And, you know, he, when he first came up to Boston, he was from Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. He he found me and he came and he heard me and we got to be friends and he'd come see me all the time. Then he ended up joining Sugar Ray and the Blue Tones, which is a fabulous yeah. Rhode Island blues band. And he really got his chops going in blues with that band. And uh, so it was kind of after that that we joined the T-Birds together. So it was really a, a very natural fit, you know, yeah. and uh he did stuff that I couldn't do and I did stuff that he couldn't do, you know? So yep. he's got a really good natural vibrato. And as I got older, my vibrato got smaller and smaller. Hardly <laughs> get any now. I don't know. Partially because uh, no rotator cuff, but. Uh, it's your new vibe, the non-vibrato Duke. <laughs> I guess, you know, but, you know, when I grew up, a funny story, when I, broke up my first strat i thought hubert sumlin was doing all those wild bends with a whammy bar so i learned to play and really sound like using a whammy bar i had oh really and and it was all in his left hand of course right and it was you know using heavy 12 to like 54 strings you know then you know somebody told me hey these guys they use a banjo string in the top and move the set down and that's how they you know, the strings are lighter and how they bend them like that. Yeah. I didn't know. Yeah. A yeah. friend came back from Newport Folk Festival seeing Hubert with Howlin' Wolf when I was like in high school and said, you know, he does all that bends with his fingers. And I'm, I said, no. We're talking about it, really. I find it interesting that you've sort of dabbled in sessions as a as a sideman too, um, but it's never been a thing that you've really gravitated towards. But of course, the, there there is that big one of the Dylan Time Out of Mind session, and I've had I had Cindy Cash Dollar on the show, and we talked about that session. Oh boy, and it's, it's it's pretty it's a crazy crazy situation. Uh, what was that like from your perspective? That because so so that record they started it in New Orleans or whatever, and they it ended up in Criteria in Miami, right? And that's where you came in. Is that what happened with you there? I came in, in the day they started in, in Miami. I, I okay. came in the day after because they had called me up and said, well, "Bob would like you to come down and make a record with him." I said, "Ah, that's great." Did you know, like, did you know him? Had you had experience with him? I had been asked to audition before for him. Okay. By the fourth time they tried to get me to audition, I finally joined the band. But, um, but, you know, they came, they, for like 20 years, it was like every five years or so, you know, hey, Bob wants you to come down and audition. But I, you know, I was really into what I was doing. I felt very (laughs) strong about it. And I, you know, that's amazing. But the making you- an album with them, that's a whole other ball game. I was right there. And so they called me and I said, I said, okay, when do you want me to come down? And I said, today. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in Louisville, Kentucky. And I'm going, I can't come today. You know? Yeah. So I said, I'll come tomorrow. If you want me to come tomorrow, I got to, you know, figure out what I'm going to bring and pack yeah. and you know, give me a break. You know, I can't just stop on a plane today. So I came down the second day and um, 
it was great. He was very welcoming to me. And uh, that was a huge band. Like there's 12 people or something playing. Yes, on it was right? 12. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of guitar players. Uh, yeah. Cindy, Augie Myers, and uh, Jim Dickerson, uh, two drummers. Uh, uh, oh, God. Who, uh, you know, the, the most was famous. Keltner. Keltner. Yeah. Keltner and Brian Blade, because Brian Blade was. Um, Daniel Anwa's guy. Yeah, his, his guy. Yeah. So, and it, it was kind of a circus, you know. Was Lanois playing guitar too? I, I don't remember if he, he actually was. Is. He, was. he was. It was really a very odd situation because yeah. first thing, Kelton was playing when I got there. And so I'm listening, you know, and they're going over song. And then, then all of a sudden when they finished the tune, somebody said, Duke's here. So uh, bring Duke in, bring, bring Duke in, you know. So I went in. Uh, and I pulled out my Telecaster and they were working on this tune, uh, Dirt Road Blues. With, I don't think they've ever released, even on a bootleg, the version. They had worked up this version. It was so perfect. It was so great. And it wow. was so good for me. I think it was was Bob Britt, I think, was on that session, right, too? I think so, yeah. I think that's who, yeah, who was playing this kind of a scratchy part, like, there was like they'd play a section and then there'd be a, a break with drums and he'd play this scratch thing on the guitar that wasn't really notes, but like this groove thing that was intense. And I went, oh, I can't wait to sink my teeth into this. <laughs> and, you know, I, I played the first, you know, the first take we did, you know, Dylan went crazy about that. And he just, oh, man, that's great. Let's go. I, we got to go hear that. We went in the studio and... We're listening to it, and he's just going, Dylan's going nuts. And all of a sudden, Lenoir goes, hold it. I don't want you to think some big-ass guitarist, blues guitar slingers coming in here and taking over my session here. Oh, my God. I don't want to hear one note, one riff that I've ever heard before. If I hear one familiar thing, you're out of here. Oh and he's God. saying that he's talking to everybody, but of course he talked to me. You know, oh, shit. and I went, Dylan loved that, you know, and 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 I knew it was just right for that arrangement. So yeah. the arrangement and the whole song just got dropped. On oh the record, God. they used one that he had done in his studio, uh, Lenoir with Dylan when they were doing demos or something. So anyway, I knew I was in trouble, yeah, but I said, well, I'll just, it's his record, it's his, he's the producer, I'll do what he tells me. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I go in, I play, and then we finish uh, a take, and Daniel comes out and he goes, uh, Duke, I, I want you to go sit this one out. I'm going to play on this one. You sit this out. I say, okay, all right. So I go in the control room, and, and they're playing, and Lenoir's playing the guitar, and then Dylan, in a little while into it, stops and he goes, yeah, yeah, I don't know, man. Let's get Duke back in here. So <laughs> reluctantly, Lenoir goes in the control room, sends me out. Yeah. We got the track. We learned the song, cut the track. Do you, know what, do you know what song that was? No, I can't remember. Yeah. But every, literally every single song he told me to sit out, he was going to play it. And then oh Dylan pulled me back. So that's, ten, that's tense, they man. Went behind, they went behind another uh, 
uh, some gobos and, and like had a 15 minute conversation. After that, I he let me play on the rest of the record, but yeah. it was very weird. And he was very unfriendly to me and wow. or made digs and, you know, really funny little comments. Like he huh. told me I had to leave before the session was over because I had been booked months earlier to go to New Orleans and record with Ruth Brown. Yeah. And I love Ruth Brown and I had already recorded with her before and I wasn't going to let her down. So the last day of the session I had to cut out and uh, Lynn West says to me, you know, Duke, you know, I want to tell you that riff you were playing in whatever tune it was that we will start working on today. He goes, that was one of the best guitar riffs I've heard in rock and roll in the last 10 years. He goes, unfortunately, we're going to recut it tomorrow and I'm going to see you apart. That's what he said to me, you know? And I said, oh, okay. You know, and like this was like, we're going to have a drink. And I think he was going somewhere else. Or, but, you know, I'm thinking to myself later, why didn't I just punch him right there? <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't be saying this in a podcast, but you know, that's oh, awesome, like, man. I love it. Said, you know, and then you just, you don't be like that, you know? So no, anyway, shit. we, we didn't get on that. Well, not because I didn't want to. And yeah, I yeah. didn't care about it. Sounds like you did your part. He just wasn't letting me do the job that Dylan brought me down there for. I was taking his place basically. Yeah. You know, for, for, for an album that was so fraught with like weird vibes and controversy, it's such a great record, like in the end. The reason is, well, of course, everybody there was a great musician. Right. No, you know, I mean, you could have taken and mixed that stuff using the the other six musicians that you didn't use, you know, that are already playing on there and make a totally different second grade album, I'm sure, yeah. you know. Yeah. But um, those were songs a lot of them he had saved for a long time. And oh, okay. So, you know, there was no doubt. I mean, you hear these songs while you're learning them and you go, this, this is going to be great, you know. Mm -hmm. And I was very excited to be part of it. I, mean, yeah. I have to admit, I only hear a few notes of myself in there. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I get it. Okay. Um, did, did, is that what led to you play? Because you played in his band for, I don't know how long, but for a while, right? Only about three months, yeah. Oh, three months. Okay, yeah. yeah. And was that was that a good experience for you? Like you you probably got to to well, I could play say your ass off on that. It started off to be in a great experience. There was mm -hmm. a few bumpy moments where I there would be something I'd get off on, and I maybe play a little too long, and I didn't realize that he was <laughs> not playing and was staring at me. You know, really. <laughs> but but you know, I like quick when you know what to do. You know, it just takes. a you know, everybody's different that yeah. how you get to play. So, but I mean, I was loving it. I was loving it. And I felt like I was really adding something and the band was playing very softly. So I, uh, because I, you know, that was the whole concept that we were going to bring the level down. It wasn't going to be rock and roll volume, which okay. Bob really liked. And it became really nice and musical. And, but when we finished that first tour, um, we came back, and I'm not going to tell you all the stories. First of all, it, 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 I just shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. But second of all, they'll end up in my book, which if I ever finish it. But uh, <laughs> but the the thing is, when I come back, came back for the next part of the next next tour, um, 
everything that I played that he was really happy with, he wasn't happy with. This oh, wow. When I did the same type of thing, yep. he was unhappy with it. And, and to the point where you get really mad at me and would yell at me at stage or swear at me on stage. And I, I just, you know, I, I, I took it and I, I said, you know, well, I'll try to I'll try to imagine because he doesn't tell you what he wants. So I try to imagine what can I do different that's going to please him. Mm-hmm. And I, I couldn't really. It just he, I just stopped pleasing him. And wow. uh, till he finally said one day, he said, tonight. I want you to do all your guitar solos on three strings, the three bottom <laughs> strings. I said, the three bottom okay. strings, huh? Because, yeah, every guitar solo you play, I just want you to play on the three bottom strings. I said, okay. That's some direction that. anyway. Yeah. Specific. No, yeah. I, you know, but uh, I thought it was odd, but I did it, and I knew I could do it great, and I, I did it, and he was really happy, but for, and fortunately, we had gone through in the days before that a lot of weird little rifts between yeah. us. And, yeah. you know, I just got to the point. I, I was 65 at that time. Mm-hmm. And I went, man, I'm 65 years old. I can't be, you know, taking people yelling at me on stage. And, you know, yeah. that's the career that I had. It wasn't going super good, but it was going, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so I just. I get it. I decided I, I, I just had to do it. But, you know, I did love that first tour, and I really – I planned on staying with that band until oh, yeah? we were touring. I, I, I really did like the job. But for mm-hmm. some, some reason, he just – it could have been something that had nothing to do with music. I have mm-hmm. a few ideas, but I don't want to, you know, mention yeah. it. You know. But, uh, yeah, it was a odd experience, but um, – I'm really glad I did it, and I'm really glad for the first three months I did it because that was really sticks in your great mind. Music it went yeah. down and it clicked right away. Can I just ask you about your recent stuff? Uh, like, it's amazing to me that you're able to to kick these albums out. It seems like you're doing at least an album a year for pretty much the last twenty years. Um, yes. And I know you've done the swing one really recently, but there's that record blues bash from I guess it was last year, where it's kind of nice to hear you digging into some sort of strat tones and kind of that whole like gnarly blues thing that, that you haven't necessarily done like that for a while. Um, yeah. uh, can you just tell me a little bit about your sound in these days and, and um, you know, as far as making that blues bash record, what kind of approach you took in the studio with guitars and amps and stuff? Well, you know, a lot of that, just a few tunes where I played an arch top, you know, and with uh, with a small amp and got it distorted. But you know, a lot of that record, I I, I wanted to have a clean Fender sound. Like that's kind of the way I started playing, you know. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, it, it took me a while when I was young to get used to the idea of that, you know, Howlin' Wolf, Willie Johnson, Early Sun records total distortion guitar you know yeah uh, i started off liking the clean pure sound so um i wanted to go back to that on that album like the real strat sound and uh and so you know that's basically where i was at on that on that most of that record and i have a new album coming out in march actually oh uh, that we have What's- three, 
three videos coming out for it. It's got 18 songs on it. Oh, shit. It's, uh, it's a basically an anthology of, of early rhythm and blues, basically, with a couple original songs on it. Well, this will come out after that. So what what's the name of that record? Do you, is there a name for it? They called it past tense. They called it Rhythm and Blues. And okay. it'll be out March 18th. And it's got okay. my band plus, with horns, plus Sue Foley, Kim Wilson, um, uh, geez, who else is so many? John Hammond is on it. Nice. Sugar Ray Norcia. Um, Mike Flanagan is on organ on a couple of cuts. Um, a lot of Austin folks. I know there's more guests, but it's it's like a lot of guests. And but it really sounds like a band with everybody. It doesn't sound like you know just put together to have a guest name on it. They're all real purposeful guest spots. Amazing. Well, I'm look, looking forward to hearing that. That's oh, killer. I'm really, really excited about it. Um, are you going to be hitting the road anytime soon or what's your, what's your status as far as touring these days? Well, uh, depends on two things. It depends on COVID. Um, uh, and it depends on, uh, my agency or an agency getting me enough work to make. It's hard to string date when you're driving. It's hard to string dates together if you don't have weekday work. And these days, Weekday work isn't all, you know, on the road from city to city. Is, yeah. hasn't been good for a long time, in my experience. Maybe mm-hmm. if you're someone on a higher level than me, it might be doable. But for me, it's been about 10 or 15 years since it's been possible to just do an entire cross-country tour driving. Right. Right. Unless you have too many days off, it eats up your, your money uh, yeah. for hotel rooms, you know. So I, I want to tour. I love playing and I love traveling. So mm-hmm. I'm hoping that just COVID goes away. <laughs> First yeah. of all, that, you know, and it's been long enough and I have a brand new album with just going to have three videos and we've got to get, we've get, got to get really good promotion for it. That is more than I've probably ever had before, you know, uh, all of it. All of a sudden, at seventy-three years old, I get it's time, man. It's time. Out, you know? So maybe, maybe it'll work. You know, maybe I'll be out there traveling quite a bit. I, I do hope so. Well, it's it's tough times for sure. I, yeah, I've got some dates coming up in April, and I, I'm still not sure if they're going to happen or not. So I know the feeling. Well, that's the thing. I had a tour. Uh, I had a tour. Where was that tour? Uh, in California, uh, in February. Canceled. Oh. The whole tour's canceled. I, I just had coming up this week, I was supposed to be doing uh, Philadelphia, New York, and or the next week, I think, Philadelphia, New York, and uh, and Connecticut. And uh-huh. uh, only one of those gigs hasn't been canceled. And I'm, it still could get canceled before it gets here. Yeah. It's really tough. You, it is you, tough. It's yeah. good thing you, you got recording work, which you do a lot of, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it comes and goes, but it's been it's been keeping me afloat for the last year for sure. So that's that's good anyway. Well, I can't thank you enough, man. I, it's been so great to talk to you about all this fascinating stuff. You've had an amazing career, and I'm just such a fan of your plan. And you I'm know. sorry, I kind of went off ranting at certain things. I just no, it's good. That's I what this is all about. When I talk to <laughs> someone who actually knows what I'm talking about, you know, <laughs> it doesn't always happen. You know, I know, I know all too well.
So who are you? What do you do? Yeah. You know, that's the worst thing you can say to a guy and anybody in an interview. Tell me about yourself. Well, first of all, I don't like to talk about myself and I won't talk about myself unless you ask me something. Then I'll go into detail about your question, you know? <laughs> well, it's been great talking to you and, and fascinating. So thanks so much. And uh, all, all right. right, man. Okay. Take Hope care. See you soon. Bye. Thank you. All right, that was my conversation with Duke Robillard. What a story and what a killer musician. Hope you enjoyed the episode and we'll see you in a couple weeks for another chilling episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. We'll see you then. Music Makers and Soul Shakers is produced at the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee by Steve Dawson. Please remember to subscribe to the show and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. You can find more info on this episode, including show notes and an audio playlist at makersandshakerspodcast.com. Thanks again to our amazing sponsors this season, Ear Trumpet Labs, Union Tube and Transistor, Black Mountain Picks, Isotope, and Spectra 1964. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Music.